antidote to tyranny is knowledge and acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property, dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Welcome back, folks, to the second hour of the Peter Mack Show on this Saturday night, November 21st. My special guest is Stefan Kinsella, and he has agreed to stay on for, uh, I think, at least most of the next hour and continue this discussion about the the issue of intellectual property rights. And just prior to the break, uh, just to catch you up, we were talking about this. The scenario was Stefan has invented this uh, carburetor that – dramatically improves uh, gas mileage, and the only relevance of that is that he's, you know, earning a lot of money from it. He's gotten a patent on it. Along comes Peter McCandless, uh, buys one of these, tears it apart, you know, in the parlance of engineering, re-engineers it, does a few modifications, uh, you know, improves it or perhaps doesn't improve it, but at least in terms of the marketplace is able to garner a portion of the market apparently that Stefan had before. Uh, intellectual rights advocates come along and they say, ah, I'm in violation of his property rights, uh, I, I'm in violation of his patent, I guess. I, I've, quote, unquote, stolen his idea. Uh, I'm therefore liable, uh, you know, I've, and so forth. Um, then from what I've learned this morning, I say no. I mean, this, this probably isn't defensible in a court of law, but I come along and say no. I simply took metal. I learned about his carburetor just like I could have learned about other carburetors. What I produced Maybe a very close copy of his, maybe a compilation of other carburetors or other information, other knowledge I have about, you know, carburetor type kinds of things. I'm free to do that. The, the claim that I violated his right is arbitrary. That, so that's kind of where we're at, right, Stefan? Yes, yeah, that's a good, a, a good recap. You know, and okay. I, would, I, would, I would say that, you know, basically what you're describing is the free market and innovation, competition, emulation, right. learning. Um, I mean, there's this uh, there's this sort of famous quote, um, or at least one I like, by Robert Nozick, which is uh, that you know the libertarian what we're in favor of is uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults, right? And this, say that again. I'm sorry. Say that quote again. He said, you know, uh, the libertarian is unique in that what we favor is the freedom to have capitalist acts between consenting adults, right? Right. And so he puts this word capitalist in there to sort of distinguish us from the Civil libertarians who don't recognize the domain of economic freedom, right? Okay. And, to, and to say that you know, if you're two consenting adults can consent to different types of sexual relations or things like this, or sure, you know, why not capitalist acts like me agreeing to pay right. you one dollar less than the minimum wage, etc. Right. And you know, right. maybe we need to recognize that there's a the, the right to innovative acts between consenting adults or in, innovative acts in a free society. Um. I mean, basically, there's there's nothing wrong with innovating and learning. I think the problem is there's sort of a, a, a hidden presumption sometimes that, you know, this Peter Mack guy had a contract or, or made a promise to Stefan Kinsella, hey, I'm going to buy your carburetor, but I promise not to learn anything from it or I promise not to compete with you. Uh-huh. And, you know, m- maybe you can come up with a uh, justification for a signed contract between us that limits me. I mean, maybe instead of selling carburetors to people and just trying to make a, a profit off of it, you want to restrict what people can do with it. And so you're not selling them the complete carburetor. You're selling them a carburetor for certain uses, right? Well, of okay. course, under a free market, then you're going to sell it for a smaller profit because 
instead of me buying a carburetor I can do whatever the hell I want with, now I've, now I've got these obligations, and I'm going to think twice before I sign it, but, you know, if you give me a, a, a good enough cut on the price, maybe I'll buy it. Um, right. But the problem is, well, is there a contract? I mean, if there's a contract, yeah, I might agree that the buyer is infringing the rights, the contract rights of the seller mm-hmm. when he copies it or, or learns from it even. Um, I don't think that such contracts would be that popular, go over that well with people in a free market. But right. if it did, then sure, the buyer is obligated. The problem is that people point to this and they say, aha, well, you can build a, copy, a patent system or even a copyright system out of this. The problem is this only binds or obligates the buyer because he has a contract. But once the information gets out and some third party learns about it, He's free to use it. He, he's not in privity of contract, we call it. Or he doesn't have a contract with the seller, with the innovator. right? Okay. And I would also say that just think about it this way. Anytime you have an improvement in a carburetor, even by the first guy or the second guy, he's got to learn his information about carburetors somehow. I mean, right. does he do it in school where the universities are now trying to restrict IP restrictions like the University of Texas um, and Harvard on how their students can use use what they've learned, or, or he's got to learn it from a book, or he's got to learn it from looking at things he plays with and tinkers with, or that he uses and sees in everyday life. I mean, this is what life is about. This is what the market is about. People learning things and using it, using this knowledge to to manipulate their property for useful right. purposes. It's not good. It's, it's not bad. It's good. I agree. I agree. Well, let's let's venture into uh, the area of um, of copyright then, and and uh, and help me and the audience learn about the similarities to the extent there are and the differences with patent law. Um, maybe we could we could start with an example, or if if you want to just talk about it in the abstract first, that's fine yeah, too. Yeah. So, so so the way it works is there's this domain of law called intellectual property, and um, it it it's used to denote four sort of traditional areas of law and two or three innovative or new areas of law. The four traditional ones are patent law, copyright, trademark, and trade secret. Okay, these are the four traditional IP law areas. They're all okay. different. Uh, why they're lumped together, I mean, there's something in common with at least patent and copyright. And then there are more n- newer, more legislated ones that, that are more recent, like uh, database rights in some countries, moral rights, which is sort of an aspect of copyright in some countries, uh, boat hole designs, uh, which is a this special you know, part of some federal law which protects the way boat holes are designed, uh, and um, uh, mask works, the way semiconductor masks are laid out, which is sort of a hybrid of copyright. And then among patents, mm-hmm. there are three or four types of patents. There are utility patents, which is what you and I think of as the regular patents that cover inventions, Design patents, which are sort of like copyrights but a little bit different, and plant patents, which have to do with asexually reproduced plants. Okay, so you have these sort of okay. different areas that the, the Congress has had enough pressure put on it to to lay out, right? And there are of course okay. areas in between which are not covered: perfumes and abstract ideas and some types of business methods and things like this. Now, the 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 big four, okay, patent is totally federal. Copyright is totally federal. Patents is the exclusive right to make or use or sell an invention. 
that you have a patent on. Okay, this is some practical okay. device or process. Okay. It doesn't require copying because it's just the right to make or use or sell this invention that you describe. Even if someone else comes up with it on their own or even later, they, you can stop them from making it. A copyright is the right to copy an expression of a creative idea. And this is typically something like a, a novel or, or a painting or, uh, according to court decisions in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, software or uh, things like that. Um, now, theoretically, cop copyright doesn't, doesn't stop someone else from independently creating the exact same work of art. But that's very rare. Of course, no right. second person right. is not going to create the same painting by Picasso or the same Star Wars movie, uh, in part because they already are aware of these things, and it's impossible to independently reproduce it now because they're aware of it. But if you could right. show that I wrote Atlas Shrugged yesterday in, total, in a total vacuum, which, by the way, is where the word clean room comes into law. In, in technology, clean room refers to you know, one of these Intel rooms with the guys dancing around in the little suits. You know, to keep right. dust particles from uh, from infecting the, uh, the, the the semiconductor crystals that they're growing, but in patent law okay. and copyright law, a clean room is you can prove that you put these guys in an environment where they had no access to the source code of Microsoft or whatever. So if there's any similarity, it's just because it had to be there, you know, to, to solve this problem. But they didn't copy it, so there's no copyright right. problem. So copyright. Okay. Pertains to works of creativity, but it's the way you express them, which is why Jeff Tucker mentioned that recipes are not covered by copyright because a recipe is a functional way of doing something. You can protect the way you describe it, but a recipe can really only be described in a couple of ways quite often, especially for a simple recipe. So there's not much creativity involved in how you describe these sequence of steps. And Again, I'm going to inside baseball here, and I don't want to, but there's an idea, in, uh, there's a doctrine in copyright law called the merger of ideas and expression. And we can return okay. to copyright law for break. <laughs> Hold that thought, mergers and expressions, and uh, we'll be back here in a minute, folks. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Mac Show. Stefan Kinsella and I will be back shortly. back to the Peter Mac show and we're talking about intellectual property rights and just uh, here in this uh, segment before Stefan was laying out uh, essentially there are four categories if I understood you right patents copyrights trademarks and trade secrets and then and then within patents you were telling us about a uh, subdivision various kinds of patents and so forth and and uh, then you were about to talk about mergers and something else and I didn't okay. quite get it hold on just a second Yes, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah, sorry, I had to change phones. My battery went out. Um, no problem. Well, there's a doctrine of, called the merger of ideas and expression, and th that doctrine okay. arose in the courts to say that you cannot have a copyright on some expression of an idea if there's really only one or one or two or three ways to describe the underlying idea. Because if you had a copyright on that expression, then you would have a copyright on the idea itself, which is the domain of patent law. See, so these areas of large jealous of each other, which is one reason, for example, there was this famous case called Feist, 
in the Supreme Court about uh, 15 or so years ago, which uh, basically came down to say that you can't have a copyright on a map because a map is purely factual, or databases, which are purely factual. Even though you have to, I mean, before this, there was this doctrine called sweat of the brow. I mean, these things are crazy. But anyway, (laughs) this is what we patent and IP lawyers deal with. The doctrine called sweat of the brow, which was the idea that if you put your hard work into something so that you know sweat started dripping off your eyebrows, then you're in, you're entitled to some protection. It's almost the Marxian labor theory of value, right? You put some work into it, wow. damn it, you're entitled to something for it. Well, they finally rejected right. that doctrine and said, well, sweat of the brow is not enough. The copyright law requires originality. It can't just be a factual depiction of things. You can't just put work into it to a simple fact, which is what a map is quite right. often, right? So you'll actually see, this is something most people don't know, you'll see now in a lot of these maps you'll buy, there are fake streets on them, okay? So there'll like to be a fake street with a cul-de-sac on it, which just doesn't exist. And they put that in there so that they can catch copiers. They can say, well, they copied the fake street, which is creative, right? I mean, we had originality to make up this fake street. And so they're violating our copyright by copying not the map, but the fake street. And so you have all these people using... The good map. And yeah, they're looking, they're saying, wait, where's that cul-de-sac? It just doesn't exist. Where's that street? Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, so that's copyright that law. Is. The other is trademark law, yeah. which is sort of a hybrid of federal and state law. Uh, trademark was always a common law and a state law uh, field, and it was quasi, uh, partly preempted by federal law, only partly because the grant in the Constitution about IP law talks about inventions and, 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 and authors. Basically, it authorizes copyright and patent law, but it doesn't talk about trademark law. So what Congress has done is they have passed this thing called the Lanham Act, which is the trademark law, federal trademark law, under the Interstate Commerce Clause. But it can only affect commerce that's between states. So if you happen to have some businesses purely local within a state with no effect on other states, then your trademark is governed by state trademark law, not federal trademark law. Okay, but trademark law basically gives you a, per, a potentially perpetual right to the unique use of an identifier of a source of goods, like a name, a brand name, for example, you know, like uh, Kleenex, unless it's lost and becomes generic. And then trade secret is basically the idea that if you keep something secret that's useful to you economically, like the formula for Coca-Cola or how you it's just, yeah. how you mix some chemicals, then you're entitled to keep it secret even if someone spills the beans if it's not too late to, to keep it. So like, let's say some employee leaves your company and he tells the second employer how this is being made, and there's a danger that this knowledge may get out. Well, that you can go to the court and get an injunction based upon your trade secret right against the second company and the employee, who the former employee, and you can say, listen, you cannot tell anyone about this. It's got to stay a trade secret. And if you tell anyone, you're going to go to jail for contempt of court. So it's a way to keep secrets secret by the force of the state. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there's basic, and, and there's federal law on this too. It's mostly state law, but there's federal law on this. And it's actually, there's like some Economic Espionage Act. Uh, and there's federal jail sentences for violation of that. So basically, all these four areas are extremely tainted by the federal government's. Um, Intervention. In my view, patent and copyright are the worst, although trademark law is, has terrible aspects to it. Um, it, it, used to, it used to protect basically confusing, confusing the consumer by, by giving, using a, a, a trademark or a trade name too similar to that of someone else. 
but they've added legislatively other things like this anti-dilution, which says that if you use another mark, even if it doesn't confuse the consumer, even if it doesn't look like the mark of the trademark holder, if it dilutes the value of their mark, you can stop that too, okay, if it tarnishes it or if it dilutes it. So okay. it's completely artificial, arbitrary, and legislative, and it's unjust as well, although I think the, by far the greatest economic and personal liberties damage is done by um, – by copyright and patent. Okay, let me throw in something here. Sort of as I'm listening to you describe all this, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about legislatures, legislators and judges who, I, I guess, this comes about through legislation or, I, I guess, to some degree, like all law, case law gets built up and, and so forth, right? And cases yeah. are settled in a certain way and that becomes case law and that becomes a foundation for further cases that are similar obviously precedents are set i think you use the term okay what what uh, aside from the the whole problem with is this based on any principle or is this just arbitrary and all that aside from that for a moment uh, stefan what bothers me is well it bothers me at least as much as the the non-principal part is, you have people who I don't think are really skilled in these areas. You have a you have a master's degree in electrical engineering. Is it not the case that in in many cases you have judges and or legislatures who really have no technical background who are passing laws and making rulings on things that just frankly don't know what the hell they're doing? Is or is that is that am I being way too critical in making that assessment? I mean, to me, that is uh, that is not a um, that's just that's not that's not a fundamental criticism. And and the the reason I say that is because I don't want to be ruled by the technocratic elite, and which is the patent law, the patent bar, right? And these guys do have techni okay. technical credentials, and so they use that they use that expertise to to, to claim an, an extra special authority. Um, I mean, I don't think the problem with okay. patent law is that the court system can't answer technical questions. I mean, okay. I think, okay. think it's possible. I, you know, I, uh, as a practical matter, and as a patent practicing patent attorney, yeah, I growls about the incompetence of, of the experts they use and the judges, although I think they do a surprisingly good job. Like I say, I don't believe in re resorting to authority. So I don't think anyone... Well, I don't, I don't either. I just... Okay, fine. So, no, I think it's I guess I... To have look, if we're if we're in favor of justice and we're in favor of reason and we're intelligent people, we can figure things out. And if we if we're not experts, we can appoint experts. And that's what courts do; they appoint experts to help them figure out these okay. areas. And actually, okay, I think that's, that's the, yeah. I, I think the problem is the conceptual underpinning of these IP law areas is completely arbitrary. So, for example, okay. the, the it's not the fact that you can't figure out what this software does or where its boundaries are; it's that you can't figure out what the, lo the legal standards really mean, because it's just some legislatively cobbled up words on paper that was a compromise by Congress, and no one knows what it means. For example, in patent law, the, the two primary things you need to get a patent is it has you have to have an invention. Well, there are three. One has to be statutory subject matter, which is a, a ballpark of its own. So, for example, printed matter, which is a book, is not, doesn't count. And abstract ideas don't count. But let's say we, let's say we're talking about practical inventions. The two primary tests is your invention has to be number one novel, which means new, which means no one ever described this exact invention before. 
And number right. two, it has to be non-obvious. And to me, this is the heart of patent law and the heart of its ambiguity. What does non-obvious mean? Well, what it means is if you knew of all the prior art that, out, that existed out there, it wouldn't have been obvious to you to come up with this new invention. Okay, well, that's... Okay, I... All right, we'll have to take that up at, on the other side of the bottom of the hour here. I, I, I couldn't quite hear that. Maybe the audience could. So, in any case, folks, we'll be back here with Stefan Kinsella in just a few minutes, and we'll continue this discussion. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Mac Show on Liberty News Radio. And we're back here with Stefan Kinzelo. I'm sorry, <laughs> got that wrong. Anyway, um, uh, you were sort of talking as we got into there about. I was, I, I was, I what quite I was hear mentioning you. was the sort of the primary test that the patent office and the courts use to determine okay. whether an applied for invention is patentable is whether it's non-obvious in view okay. of the prior art, and non-obviousness right. is this sort of irreducibly uh, it's the irreducible idea that it's just non-obvious to, to someone who's skilled in the art which is another idea that has no uh, objective or coherent meaning and but the, so the point is you were talking about um, whether these guys aren't technical experts and that's a problem and um, I think the bigger problem is that the the very standards of patent law are arbitrary and vague and they are just literally impossible to apply objectively and fairly um, and even if they even if they could be applied objectively, I think they'd be wrong. I mean, you know, you could you could pass a law that says every redhead should be executed, and that might be sure. pretty damn clear. But it wouldn't right. be right. Um, <laughs> right. But this this law is more like a law saying everyone with hair that looks wrong should be executed. You know, that's that's what these right. are more like. Um, I, right. I don't know what a non obvious idea is. Uh, I know how right. to argue it using what's going to persuade a court or an examiner. But this just sort of this right. artificial standards set up by the courts. Okay. Well, wow, it's it's a it's a more complex field than I than I ever imagined. Uh, but that should have been obvious, I suppose, uh, at the beginning of the show when you started talking about you know your your libertarian friends of one persuasion who say, well, I'm for intellectual property rights, and then you start laying out specific examples, and they say, well, I don't want that, I don't want that, and yet they're not able to say you know in a, a positive sense what they do want. Uh, if we could, Stefan, as we're, we're down here to about uh, less than a half hour, let's talk about um, in some concrete examples that may be helpful to me and, and, the, and the listeners, the notion of uh, copyright infringement. For example, you have your website. If I, it, it, let's imagine we live in a universe where there, there's no federal state laws imposing everything. You have your website and you have articles on there. If I just copy one of your articles and erase your name and put my name on it and stick it on my website as if I wrote it, absent any loss, I still think that's wrong. I'm not saying, I mean, I am, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to use the word stealing because that has a specific name, but I'm using an idea that it's not mine. I didn't write that. And right. yet I put my name on there as if I wrote and, it. And that would and, be and we teach that, people, that's, that's play, classical plagiarism. I agree with you. Right. And we teach people in colleges, and, and my, my friends, my colleagues in the humanities that demand much more writing, obviously, than I do in a math course, uh, are very uh, quick to uh, uh, 
point this out to students when they do it. They, they lift a passage, a, a phrase, uh, whether it's a direct quote or not, and, and they fail to give the appropriate citations, and, and they're called on the carpet for that, as, as I think they should be. Now, okay, so what is the distinction um, in your mind between plagiarism and copyright violation, or what if there should be such a thing as copyright violation then? I mean, I think there's almost no relation, and basically plagiarism, okay. which I agree is is immoral, or usually is immoral in, in the traditional uh, context. Um, right. And that is I'm pretending... Why... Go ahead. I'm, I was, I'm sorry, I was just trying to emphasize, because I'm pretending that something I wrote, I'm pretending to have written something that I clearly did right. not write. It would be a lie for me to say right. I wrote that. Yeah, it's dishonesty, which most, most people right. recognize as being immoral. Um, right. And, um, uh, and, 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 and this is what IP advocates latch on sort of in an uncareful ad hoc with, you know, they say, well, well, you're for plagiarism if you're anti-IP. As if to say that that IP law is based upon the foundation of plagiarism, and okay, so let's 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 take that one step at a time. First of all, if IP law is based upon the immorality of plagiarism, well, it couldn't be a law because even though it's immoral, it's not illegal. It doesn't violate anyone's rights for me to lie. It doesn't necessarily violate someone's rights for me to to deceive to, to deceive people about um, uh, about authoring something. Okay. Okay. Now, it, it could if you get away with it, which is rare. I mean, if I look, if I there are there are millions of, of public domain works out there right now, Plato, you know, Plato's works, Aristotle's works, Shakespeare's works. I can publish tomorrow one of Shakespeare's plays on the internet. There's no copyright infringement. There are no okay. there's no copyright in that. I can change the name if I want. I can say, you know, uh, A Midsummer's Night's Dream by Stephen Kinsella. Now, what's going to happen? Will anyone really be deceived? Will they take me seriously? Will it even be dishonest, or will it just be stupid and a joke, and will I make myself look like an idiot? I mean, will right. I be able to, to sell uh, uh, Kinsella's Republic and just duplicate <laughs> the words of Plato's Republic? I'm t- perfectly right. free to do that, but you don't see people doing that because right. you know, no one wants to buy a, an altered work of a famous work. They want to buy the original right. thing. Now, in certain right. cases, if you could, if you actually uh, alter the work and deceive the customer, and you you make them a contractual guarantee that I'm the author of this, and if I'm not, you can sue me for damages. Well, okay, then there's fraud. There's a contractual right. claim against that guy, which almost never happens. And if it does, it still wouldn't justify IP law. The point is that copyright infringement and patent infringement do not re- require a showing of plagiarism. They don't. They just require you to copy someone. I mean, look, what's the typical, who's the typical defendant of a copyright claim? It's someone who shared, you know, a Madonna song or something like that. They don't pretend like they wrote Madonna song. They just share it, right? Or in a patent case, again, right. it's just I'm selling a product and someone sues me and says, hey, you know what, I filed, I filed a patent on that 17, you know, seven years ago. And uh, there's a claim, claim 28 in there. Uh, I can construe that to cover what you're doing. So you, you have to stop or pay me royalties, or you have to just stop because you're competing with me and go out of business. You know, right. This is why uh, uh, RIM, who makes the BlackBerry, paid $612 million, literally, to um, NTP, the, the company that owns the patents, even though the patents that were in question were under examina- re-examination of the patent office and were, had questionable validity because they were still considered valid at the time, and the court had the power to issue an injunction 
telling Rim, you cannot sell any more blackberries, which was angering members of Congress because they use blackberries. <laughs> there, there probably would have been, if it had gone further, there probably would have been the federal government would have stepped in and used its power as the issuer of patents to issue what's called a compulsory license, which is sort of like an eminent domain taking. So it's completely bizarre. The, the federal government issues these monopolies called patents and then retains the power to abrogate them, but then they have to issue compensation to the holder of it under the eminent domain statute as if it's a private property, right? I mean, it's completely bizarre. It's almost like the, FTC, uh, the, uh, the FDA drug approval process. You have these companies that make these chemicals that are protected by patents, these pharmaceuticals, and they claim that they need the patent monopoly to help them um, uh, recoup the, the cost of making the drugs or the drugs that never make right. it to market or whatever. And yet right. the same government that's granting them this wonderful patent is imposing so many costs on them in terms of the FDA process, the regulatory process, the delays introduced, the disclosure requirements required by the FDA process, the taxes, the regulations. I mean, so the government hampers these companies, shackles them, makes them into basically handicapped companies until they're screaming for some help, and the government says, okay, well, here's a patent. That'll give you some monopoly rights. It's, so you have these it's, – it's, it's, the, it's the adage of Mises that, you know, controls breed controls. The government imposes regulations on the economy. It causes damage, and people squeal for relief, and the government imposes more controls, and it gets worse and worse right. and worse. And the patent right. law and the copyright law are just part of that. Okay, so on copyright, I, I, I want to be clear on this, and I, I'm pretty uh, naive, I guess, or simple. If, if uh, somebody writes something, and I, uh, I, I take a book, and I sell it, uh, you write it. I, I, take a, I lift a bunch of your writings from your website. I put them into a book. I put your name onto it. I'm not pretending. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm not pretending right. I wrote it, and I just sell it, and I make money off it. Then if, if you had, in fact, copyrighted, you may have, I don't know, your your writings, I sell it, I'm in violation of copyright law, right? Yes, and um, and this is another um, uh, misunderstanding. Uh, copyright is not a verb. It's a, it's, it's a thing that happens. It's a right that you have. In other words, it's not up to me whether I have a copyright in my books or my articles or the email that you sent to me today. You have a copyright in that because you wrote it. That's it. Federal law says you have a copyright in that. You don't have to okay. copyright it. You don't have to register for it. You don't have to ask okay. for it. Okay. And you can't even okay. get rid of it. This is a funny thing. <laughs> okay. I mean, let's suppose you wanted to – you had a book that you wanted to dedicate to the world. You didn't want anyone – it's almost impossible to do it. There's really no way to do it. I mean, let's – because you have a copyright, and the government says you do, which they say you can sue someone to stop them. So if you say – if you tell someone, well – yeah, you can reproduce. If you sign a contract with them, yeah, then they can rely on the contract. But let's say you want to release it to the whole world. It's almost impossible to do it. Copyright is what we call sticky. The government imposes okay, it on people. I, well, we'll have to pick that up. Uh, the, the music always cuts into you at the last there, Stefan. So we'll, we'll pick that up in a minute, folks. Stay with us. We've got one more segment to go. This is fascinating. I hope it is for you, too. We'll be back here in just a minute. Peter Mack Show, and we're glad you're listening tonight, and I think this is uh, 
very enlightening for me. Wow, it's it's a complex subject, and I see why. <laughs> obviously, people need uh, to specialize uh, in in this area of law, Stefan. Um, so let me just be clear. Uh, I'm sorry. I before I do that, uh, you you were you were talking about something as we entered the music just before, and if you could pick it up there again. No, that's that's okay. Go go ahead with with your question. Well, okay. Uh, I just want to be clear on uh, both what the law uh, demands or says is an infraction and the principle that says that it should not be with respect to copyright law. So if I were to take, um, you know, anybody's creation, and, and as you told me uh, in the previous segment, if somebody writes something like the email, that's automatically copyrighted. It's not right. something that requires, you know, the, you know, some stamp of approval from some government, um, you know, bureaucrat to say, yeah, you've got a copyright that, uh, on that now. And, and if I take that and I sell it, and I'm not plagiarizing, so I'm making the, proper, the appropriate attributions to the people that wrote it, let's say you, and I sell it and I make money, then I could be sued, legally, as I understand it, I could be sued for copyright uh, infringement or violation. Correct. Is that's that correct. correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and, and why is that? Tell, tell us why that, in principle, should not be the case. Okay, so under the current law, uh, the copyright statute... Um, I mean, it, the word copyright is a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not just a copyright or the right to reproduce. If copyright was only the right to reproduce, uh, to literally reproduce something, it would still be unjust in my view, but it wouldn't be nearly as bad as it is now. There's a bundle of rights. If you look in the copyright statute, they're, they're, they're explicitly uh, enumerated. And uh, in addition to the right to copyright, there's a right to distribute, the right to broadcast, the right to form, things like this. And the worst, in my opinion, is the right to derivative works. So, for example, um, a work that derives from another work that, that's already a work. So, for example, I could not write tomorrow. Uh, in, fact, uh, in fact, this just reminds me of another example. There was a, uh, a sequel written to The Catcher in the Rye, I believe, something like that, recently. And uh, uh, the the author of this sequel to The Catcher in the Rye, which is a derivative work because the characters derive from those in the original, uh, a federal court, this is in the last uh, three or four months, enjoined, issued an injunction against the selling of this book. Now, this is literally book banning by the government, literal book banning. They cannot publish it, and if they do, they, they will go to jail for contempt of court, not just a, for financial penalty. So... The derivative Oops, work, we basically, lost you, you know, Gator. at least I did. <laughs> uh, maybe the same scenario. Okay, uh, hopefully you're hearing me, but uh, hopefully we'll get you back on here as we did. Uh, another little technical glitch here, but okay. As I understand it, I'll just recap since uh, I, I'm not hearing you. Hopefully, I'm hello. Not can you hear you. me? Yeah, I can now. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Just, I didn't know. I was. Uh, uh, I was talking. It's about, not your. Hello? It's not can your fault. Me? It just it happens. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure where I dropped out, but I was talking about. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. You can tell me where I dropped off. Uh, well, you you mentioned that there's this uh, der uh, this this notion of derivative right. uh, copyright. I'm not sure I'm using. And so you talked about a particular case where someone had uh, used the characters in the book uh, The Catcher in the Rye, right. and and a, a court had enjoined the pu if that's the correct word enjoined yes. the. Mm -hmm. Public publication of this book yes. because of its apparent similarity or it's being derived from the catch yeah, of the Yeah, it was based, up, based upon the original characters. Um, you know, uh, it was it, it, to enjoin means to issue an injunction. So the court issues right. an order saying 
you shall not do this. And if you do, it's contempt of court and you will go to jail. So this is a literal case of book, bur- book banning by, by, by virtue of, of copyright law. It's not the only one. So this is an example of what, in my opinion, the worst part of copyright law is actually the derivative rights, the derivative works. I mean, look, let's say I've never seen a Star Wars movie. I've never made a contract with, with uh, George Lucas by any stretch of the imagination. But I've heard, in common culture, I've heard of these characters. And I want to make a, I don't know, a porno film based upon it. Or okay. I want to, you know, just write a novel saying, you know, the further adventures of uh, Han Solo in the Kinsella Galaxy. They could stop me from doing that. Although I'm, I am not taking their property, I'm not doing anything to their property, I'm not hurting them, I'm just doing something that people want to listen to. So to me, this is the problem with, with one of the problems with copyright is the derivative, uh, derivative works provision. Okay, okay, I understand that. That seems, yeah, especially egregious. But back to the more mundane, if you will, um, infraction of copyright law. You write something, I compile it, you know, put a nice cover on it, and I offer it for sale. Um, I, I, as I understand it from what you just said, and that's a violation of your copyright, and you could sue me and get a court to enjoin me from doing so or so forth. And the reason it shouldn't do that is, it, and I'm trying to draw the parallel right, here, right, because right. With the principle, the reason it shouldn't be is because. I'm using my paper and my ink, or if it's an electronic thing, you know, something that belongs to me. You can't copyright an idea, so I'm not, quote, I'm not stealing your idea. I'm simply taking something, and I'm putting it on my paper, and I'm selling it. And therefore, I haven't, in any sense, violated your copyrights, right? Yes, yes. So I would say we, we libertarians need to be reminded that we, unlike many other political philosophies, we believe we live by right, right? We don't live by right. permission. I don't have to find a permission from the government to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly. I can exactly. do anything I want except prohibited things. So what should be prohibited? Violating the rights of others, which means trespassing against their property, which means using their property without their consent, or which means invading or violating the borders of their property without their consent. Right. So if I'm not doing that, I can do whatever I want. Now, we don't live in Soviet Russia. You know, we don't live, although it's getting worse, but right. we don't favor a system where we have to ask permission to do things. So right. I don't need to explain why I have the right to publish this poem or to, to write this novel. I just, right. I just have to be free of infringing or aggressing against or trespassing against the rights of someone else. So they need to show that I'm committing some kind of trespass. And I am not by merely impatterning my own property in a certain way that others find right. valuable. It is not trespassing against the property of anyone else. They are still free to do whatever right. they want to do with their own property. Right. That's the fundamental libertarian case against copyright. Right. That makes sense. That's good. So is it the case, and I don't want to take you too far afield here if you were about to go somewhere else, but uh, in the remaining four minutes or so, I'm, I'm trying to get a better understanding from this discussion in my own mind of what constitutes property. And my initial thought here um, after these two hours or so of discussing this, Stefan, is that property must be something physical, tangible, or is that too limiting? I mean, I, I would say the primary characteristic is it has to have scarcity, which is basically means okay. it's, com- it, it's contestable. 
something that people okay. can fight over. Okay. Basically, it means something that has a nature, a causal nature, such that if you use it, it excludes my use of it. Only one person can right. use it, right? And so this right. is a pro- the problem. If there's a resource like that that multiple, pe- multiple claimants would like to use, well, your use excludes my use. So either we're, if if this if this resource is useful, this scarce resource is useful, then um, either it's going to be fought over forever in a in a kind of a, an anarchistic in the bad sense society, or they're going to be <laughs> careful. <fooled. laughs> yeah. yeah, in the bad right. sense, right? In in, in the pejorative, right? right, right. Um, right. No, meaning no rules, uh, right, meaning right. anyone can take it from day to day, and you have no assurance that this is my right. property and I have a right to use it. Right. Or there is Total an chaos. owner assigned to this resource. And so I, I think basically we, we say if there's a resource that someone needs to own to be able to use it, then who owns it? That's the libertarian answer. Right. The libertarian answer is the person with the best connection to it owns it. What's the best connection? Well, we believe it's the person who discovers the resource and puts it to use first, right, or who received it by contract from someone who did. Right. It's actually very, very simple. Right. Well, and – and and to me that's the beauty of of anarchy or libertarianism as 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 we're using it here tonight is the simplicity of it 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 is really just so fundamentally simple it seems to me maybe i'm naive in in having that opinion but um uh you're probably hearing me and i've lost you stefan again no Hopefully no i'm here still a, okay um yeah and and what's helpful to me stefan as we go through this Stefan, I'm sorry, um, is is when you take something and you say, okay, this is illegal, then look at the logical ramifications of that. So, for example, I was thinking of this as you were talking about copyright. If it's if it's illegal for me to take what you have written and package it in a book and sell it, uh, you know, as the current law states, then what if I translate that into German? Is that illegal? Uh, and if that's illegal, yeah. what if I translate it using a language that nobody except one other person understands? Is that illegal? And you start looking at the extreme cases, and then you then to me it forces you back to forces you to revisit or to uncover or identify or make explicit the underlying principle. I agree. And I just ran out of time. Well, thank you very much for being on. Hold on after we go off the air for just a minute, if you would, and uh, folks. Uh, this will be up uh, for you to listen to again uh, very soon on my website, Peter Mac Show, Liberty News Radio, and uh, elsewhere shortly. So thanks for tuning in, Stefan. Uh, thanks very much for being on, and uh, we'll have you on again soon. <laughs>